part of the media ministry of Cornerstone Church. You can listen to this and other messages on our website at www.corner-stone.org or by subscribing to our podcast. Uh, The chorus to that song, I am redeemed, you set me free. So I shake off these heavy chains and wipe away every stain. Now I'm not who I used to be, I'm redeemed. Uh, This week as I was pondering that, I, I asked them if they would sing that right beforehand because I really wanted to this morning to, to have that mindset of just if we can grasp what it truly means to be redeemed, if we can grasp really the biblical principle and truth there, then, then folks, it allows us to understand what Christ is calling us to in this area of forgiveness. And forgiveness in our minds a lot of times is just, you know, this tolerance that we would have to allow for other people's sins in our lives. And that's not biblical forgiveness at all. God did not have more of a tolerance and kind of look the other way. No, he knows every stain of our heart. We just sing about when we're redeemed, folks, you're either redeemed or you're not. There's no in-between. There's not a progression that we would go to that, okay, you're a little redeemed, now you're mostly redeemed, now you're all the way redeemed. This is not the biblical model that we see. When we look at the scripture, what we see is that the moment that we trust Christ and his finished work for our rightness with a holy God, we are redeemed. We go from zero to 100% all in an instance. We don't kind of warm up. It's not kind of like, you know, even marriage, you can say, you know, marriage... Before you said I do and before he says I now pronounce you husband and wife, you're not married. You may have dated for a while. You may have, you know, had an occasion where you were uh, engaged and you did all these different things. But you go from a moment of being unmarried to when he makes that pronouncement, you're married. And you're not married 50%. Not married 75%. You know, a, a month before the wedding, you're not saying, well, we're mostly married. No, you're not married. But when he makes that pronouncement, Says so you are now husband and wife. You're a hundred percent married. That is a picture of what happens into our heart and our lives when it comes to being redeemed. And, and I want to tell you the end of the sermon, so that when we get there, you can say, okay, now I kind of see how that fits together. But if you grasp the meaning of that song, if you really kind of understand that as much as we humanly can, then you begin to understand the whole sermon today, and Jesus is teaching on forgiveness. Until we begin to understand that forgiveness and redemption through a holy God was not part and partial, but that it was in totality based upon the work of Christ, then we just don't understand it. That's why Romans 5, 8, Brittany, you were sharing with me this morning, just what God had laid on your heart. And I thank you for that because it just confirmed a lot of the things that he had been laying on my heart. And I love when God does that. But that's why Romans 5, 8 has always been. But God demonstrates his own love toward us and that why we were yet sinners. He knew every sin. There's never a time that God sits there and goes, oh my goodness, I cannot believe that Ricky just did that. Cretia <laughs> says that. The rest of your family may say that. But God never says that. He knows every sin. We're completely clean. Completely redeemed. When you grasp that, 
when you begin to have not just a theological understanding, but you be able to grasp that great truth, you will have then a foundation for biblical forgiveness. Without that, you are going to be tempted to become a better forgiver. And I hope that that becomes a little bit more clear in the sermon this morning. Because most of the time, let's just be honest, guys, most of the time what we're looking for in a lot of Christianity and how we've been taught throughout our life is just this moral road and that the more that we go to church, the more that we do the right things, the more moral that we would be, the more approving of Christ is in our life. Hey, man, you're really shaping up. And you miss the whole picture of redemption. He said that even when he looks at us, even our best works, are like filthy rags compared to his holiness. That's where we are, guys. And so what we need is not part and partial, not this kind of, okay, you're getting better and better and better. Oh, now you're a Christian. No, we need that instantaneous work of Christ in our lives. So open up to Matthew 18. It's probably one of the most familiar passages where Jesus taught about forgiveness. And I want to give you a little bit of background. Uh, Jesus, if you notice, how many of y'all have still a Bible that has Jesus' words in red. Yeah. Is there a lot of red in that chapter? There's a whole bunch. Because what has happened, if you look all the way back to the beginning, the disciples have come up and they're asking Christ's Christ question. This is kind of an informal teaching. And uh, they've gathered together. Maybe it's based on some sermons that he had preached and some teachings that he had had that morning or the day before or the last week. And so they have questions. And so they take this opportunity to come to Christ, and they begin to ask him questions about different things. Right before this is where we find one of the most meaningful teaches, teachings on how do we deal with people when people offend you. Now, I'm not talking about offend you like they said something bad. I mean, when they've done a wrong against you, when they truly have offended you. And one of the most famous teachings that we find here about how do we deal with that, how we go to a brother one-on-one, we go to that person one-on-one, hey, if that doesn't work, we go to that brother or that sister and we take somebody with us, not in the hopes of ganging up on them, but the hopes that everybody's going to be able to work out and have relationship again, that you're able to work through this. So it's based on that that perhaps it has triggered something in Peter's mind and P- Peter begins to speak. And like Peter usually does, he's got a suggestion for Jesus, you know. A lot of other ones thought the suggestions. Peter is one of the few that actually acted on the suggestions that he would have. So look in verse 21, Matthew 18. Then Peter came up to him and he said, Lord, since they were just talking about offenses and somebody hurting you and maybe the cause to have to forgive somebody, he says, Lord, how, how often should you know, my brother sin against me and I forgive him? You're talking about making things right when somebody has offended us. They've sinned against us, and they've done something wrong to us. How many times? And look what he says. As many as seven times. Now, how many of y'all have heard that before? You're kind of familiar with that. It's one of the most familiar teachings that Christ gives on forgiveness. Let me give you a basis of where we're going. In Jewish thought, the rabbis had a standard that if you are really kind of a holy person, you would forgive somebody three times that they've offended you. In fact, in one of the books, one of the holy writings, I say they consider it holy. We don't consider it holy and sacred in our tradition. But one of the things that they would write is, if a man commits a transgression, the first, second, and third time he is forgiven. The fourth time he is not forgiven. 
Well, Peter knows this. This is the, the, what the rabbis had taught. This is what he had learned. And so he comes back and he says, you know, Christ, you're trying to stretch us, aren't you? <laughs> you just had that whole teaching on forgiving and going to that person one-on-one. And if the relationship isn't made right, then maybe you take a couple other brothers with you. And notice that he says brother. This is how Christians act one another. doesn't mean that we wouldn't take some of this application and apply it to outside the Christian faith. But he's talking about brothers. So he's talking about he is certainly the family of God. Certainly believers should act this way. And so Peter goes, you know, I, I know that the standard kind of for holy living, moral living is three. What about seven? And I really do think that he was earnest in his belief. He was sincere in what he taught, uh, was speaking. And I really do think that he was just trying to say, wouldn't it be kind of magnanimous of us as believers, followers of Christ, not just to double that three, but to go one more? And Jesus comes back, and look, look what he says in verse 22. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. He wasn't talking about 490. He was talking about endless. I may have shared this with you before, because to me, I think anytime we have really good truth, that sometimes it just helps solidify the truth when we have kind of a picture. We're all preschoolers in our heart, okay? We really are. And so, so they had a standard. They had something that they measured forgiveness by. Three. And this was what the rabbis taught. And they said, okay, if you're going to be a holy person, if you're going to be a moral person, here's your standard. And Peter comes back and he says, Jesus, we're followers of you. And so we want to take that standard. And what if we just up that standard? What if we, you know, not three times, but seven times? And I think he was very sincere. And in one way, isn't seven more than three? Wouldn't it stand out a little bit more? And then Jesus kind of blows the mind, as he often did. He said, Peter, I tell you, when it comes to forgiveness, you know, you just don't count numbers anymore. It's not a number thing. Seven may seem more than three, but 17 is more than seven. And 107 is more than 17. And he begins to extend... Not a numerical. I know he said, don't argue, you know, don't say, well, Bobby, he says right there 490. No, when is in the Greek construction, he is using that symbolically to say seven is this perfect number. It stands for perfection. And he uses the seven times 70 to say, okay, endless. Endless. It just keeps on going. It just keeps on going. Our understanding of this, our ability to grasp this, it's going to make the difference between if you approach forgiveness in a moral attitude or if you approach it in a Christ-like attitude. Because Christ did not say, I expect you as a follower of Christ to become better at forgiveness. He says, I'm going to change the whole foundation of your understanding of forgiveness. I just don't want to increase in number to go from 3 to 7 to to 490 or 4,090. He said, I I don't want you to think about it in a numerical way. I want you to approach it in a whole different way. When we approach forgiveness just seeking a bigger number, guys, here's the challenge of that. Number one, you're putting a lot of emphasis on your own ability and your own understanding. 
The other thing, it's really easy then to become a forgiveness counter. Do you think, because he knows all things, that God knows the number of sins that you've committed your entire life? Do you think he's counting those sins? I don't either. Praise God, I hope he's not. Because he is all knowledgeable. He knows all things. I believe he knows the exact number of sins. If I just said, okay, but, uh, God, how many has Bobby Lincoln committed? I think he could probably come up with the number. Because he knows all things. And it is not a matter to him. Because when I was 12 years old, I came to the foot of the cross and I found salvation through the work of Christ. And from that day on, <laughs> I've been clothed in his righteousness because he's taken every one of my sins. I would even go maybe as far theologically to say, the, you know, the count stopped. Theologically, it certainly did. Application-wise, it certainly did. Does God know what I do? Yes. And so probably God still can come up with that number, 5,400,372, you know, or whatever. But it doesn't matter because God is not a number counter. And this would be a great place for us to, and, and I'm not begging for an amen, but this would be a great place in our heart and our mind to go, amen. Here's the tragedy of a number counter when it comes to sin in our relationships. Not just, because number one, do you really want God to be a number counter? How many of you had moms and dads that were number counters? Don't you let me get to ten. I mean, remember that? And I'm not saying that you're wrong, mom and dad. I'm just saying, you know, that, you know, and so we were sitting there under the wrath of mom or dad. One, two, and we're just kind of giving off. But when she got to seven or eight, the voice of God. Because we knew that if it reached ten, or whatever that number was, there was judgment to come. That is not how holy God deals with us because of the work of Christ. It is not a thousand, it is not a million, it is not a billion. There is not a number. He is not a number counter. We have been made clean and righteous in the work of Christ. He has taken all of our sins and he has indwelt in us now all of his righteousness. This isn't just supposed to be a summary of the theology of forgiveness and salvation. This is the new foundation upon which Christ is going to build how you and I now interrelate. That because Christ has done this for us, now how, here's how you and I work together. Here's when you offend me and I offend you. Here's the new foundation. Because I don't know about you, because if it was left up to a number, I mean, seriously, guys, seriously, I'm talking about real hurt in your life. How many of y'all are good enough to go to seven? I mean, I was thinking three... I thought the rabbis were at least in my target range. I mean, maybe I can give you three. And then Peter starts going, seven? And I'm going, man, you just, you just cut me out. I'm not talking about somebody that showed up late and you were offended because you were there on time. I'm not somebody that said that they were going to do this and they ended up not doing that. I'm talking about people that have tragically hurt you. They have sinned against you in your life. They have brought harm and hurt to your life. Not just to the exterior, but to the interior. Your heart, your mind, and you're hurt. And it could be a parent, and it could be a friend, and it could be a loved one. It could be a husband or a wife. 
I don't know that I got three in me, guys. I can almost promise you I don't have seven in me. And so if we're going to count numbers and if we're going to go with 490, then cut me out, and I think for the most part probably cut all of you out too. So what was this new foundation? What was this understanding? See, when you have a number in mind, what's the focus? Think about that in your mind. When we count, when we focus on a number of times that we're going to fail, what is the focus, guys? The focus is the sin, right? Well, they just hurt me again. Christ takes our eyes off of the focus of sin and puts our focus on him. This was radically different from anything that uh, they could understand or, or that they had had teaching on. Look at verse 23. Whenever Jesus had really deep truths that were new and profound, he would tell a story. Almost all the time, he would tell a story because he said, okay, this is changing their way of thinking so much that unless I really kind of illustrate it with a story, man, it is going to go right over their head. So he's just taking out number counting, and now he's putting in a whole new foundation. And look at verse 23. He says, therefore, the kingdom of heaven, so this includes, this is life among Christians, This is what heaven's like. This is what the kingdom of God followers are like. May be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. And then he goes on, and folks, this is kingdom thinking. Look at verse 24 and 25. When he began to settle, one that was brought before him owed him 10,000 talents. Now, theologians have argued, is that like a million dollars in our... You know, day and age, is it like 10 million? Is it a billion? Again, if we want to count numbers, the main thing that Jesus is emphasizing there is that it's way too much for this man to pay. Is that he could not have lived to be thousands of years old and he still could not have paid this. So this is an astronomical number. So whatever that number is for you, how many of you is astronomical enough 5 million? That in your lifetime, you probably can. How many of y'all would that be 50 million? How many of y'all would say, okay, a billion would settle it? You know, settle it. I, I would never be able to pay back, no matter what I did. No matter how hard I worked, I would never be able to pay back a billion dollars. You put it in the number because the number wasn't meant to be something that was, oh, okay, I might be able to get there. It was meant to be so outlandish and so far away from the reality that this man had no chance on his own. He could never work enough to be able to repay this back. Verse 24. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold and his wife and his children and all that he had and payment to be made. Now, that seems harsh to us. We don't live in that kind of society. That was the society that they lived in. This was a form of justice. The man is settling his accounts, and when you settle accounts, you want to bring justice to it. Any accountants in here? Any CPAs? Any people that do books? You do a little bit of books for the church. Do you like it when it's zeros? Yeah, when everything balances out. So when you go in there to rectify something, and you're trying to settle accounts, there's joy when you go, man, both sides balanced, zero. 
justice is being done here. Don't think that this is injustice. Don't think just because we live in a different culture where we would not think about this guy being sold into slavery and his family, his, his wife and his kids. Our thought would be, well, they never did anything. That's where our natural mind goes. But, but this was justice. This was rectifying the accounts back in that daytime. And nobody that was there, the disciples, Peter, the Jewish people that were hanging out, none of them would have gone, oh, they, they, they were going, okay, that makes sense. You got me so far. I'm following. I'm tracking with you. This would have been standard and, and logical to them. Now, look what happens. Uh, wait, one, one more statement about this. In that, do you sense in verse 25 anger or justice being done? It's kind of an important point. When he rectifies his accounts and he says, okay, uh, you need to be sold into slavery and your wife and your children. Do you see anger or do you see justice? Justice. This is, this is not that and he breathed fire from his mouth and it, with anger. No, he, he's, just, he's doing justice here. Okay? Big difference. Now look at the next verse, verse 26. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me. Let's just stop right there. Okay, I've done this. I have not, you know, I have patience with me. The problem is he could never pay this back. And so at the end of that, he says, and I will pay you everything. Could this man actually do that? For, for y'all that are kind of with this story, acting it out together, could this man ever do that? Jesus is setting this story up very one-sided with purpose so that we don't go, well, you know, if he lived to be 112 and he had a really good job, then possibly he could pay that back. Jesus is stretching this out so far that nobody in that crowd is thinking, well, you know, there's a slight possibility. And yet the defense of this man who comes that owes him and can never pay him back, he said, will you be patient with me? And I'll pay you back. There's, there's not a possibility. Verse 27. And the king, out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him his debt. Uh, if you have the NIV, it's going to say canceled his debt. Very important word there. He forgave the debt. He canceled the debt. It says that he had pity. That word isn't like, sometimes we use the word pity like, oh. The word is compassion. It's the same compassion. You remember in uh, uh, Matthew chapter 9, when Jesus looked on the crowd and he said, they're like a sheep without a shepherd. Same word used there. Used without, uh, throughout the, the New Testament. And, and this compassion, it uses the word pity, but this word compassion means from the bowels. Have you ever hurt so bad for somebody else that it hurt in your gut? Maybe for your children. I mean, it's just it hurt. And it hurt so deeply it was from your gut. That's the word. That's what this master is feeling. It's not pity like, well, no. It's personal. In his own gut, he has compassion. The same way, same word that Jesus used, that when he looked at the crowd, he looked at all these Jewish people, he said, they're, they're like sheep without a shepherd. And then he used this word, and he said that he word forgave. That word means to cancel, to, to erase. It's not a reduction. Notice he doesn't come back and say, you know, did I say two billion? 
Hey, Seth, I'm going to cut you a deal. Not $2 billion for you, because, you know, 1000 Still going to take a long time to pay back. Still going to take 1000 I'm going to cut you a deal so that you can pay me back. Is that what the king does? There's a reason why he doesn't do it that way. He does not reduce the sentence. It's either full payment or nothing. See, that's not the bargain that God has made with you guys. He hasn't said, okay, I'll come into your heart, but here's what I want from you. I want you to start shaping up. I want you to start acting right. And I want you to be more forgiving. I want you to become a better forgiver. This is not the call of Christ. To have more of Christ and less of me does not mean all of a sudden I am a better forgiver. It means that I take into my account my, my logic, my understanding, my, my thought process when it comes to an offense against me a whole new way. I'm not just going from three to seven to even 490. It means that I'm taking out numbers from the system altogether and that there's a new foundation by which I'm going to settle this. So if this was a play, end of Act 1, and now the curtains rise on Act 2, and look what happened, verse 28, uh, or this is Act 3 actually, Act one would have been where the servant comes in to be judged. Uh, act two is when the king is giving this pronouncement. This is now act three, okay? Verse 28, 29. But when the same servant went out, he went to one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. A denarii was a, way, uh, a day's pay for an average worker, just a common worker. So in a hundred days, three, three months, a little over three months, you could possibly pay this back. And seizing him, he began to choke him. He says, pay what you owe. So this fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him. And notice the words, have patience with me and I will pay you. The exact same terms that this man had used himself before the king. Very important there. But all of a sudden something came into factor. And that factor was number counting. What's the number? hundred denarii. You owe me a hundred denarii. Pay up. I don't have a hundred denarii. Have patience with me and I'll pay you. Give me some time. And this was actually a, a real possibility. Three and a half months. Work really hard. Maybe do a little overtime. You can pay that back. But all of a sudden, this man who had just been forgiven where numbers were cast aside, this man now comes out and numbers become a factor. You got that? You get that? You kind of get Act 3. If this was a play again, this would be the end of Act 3, and there'd be an intermission. And in intermission, people go to the bathroom, they get popcorn, they get a drink, they do these different things. But sometimes they talk. I don't know if you've ever been to play, but Carly and I, the few times that we get to go to play at intermission, you know, so what do you think so far? He said, man, I, I like this. And Man, when we went to see uh, Phantom of the Opera years ago, it's like, man, this is really good. What do you think is going to happen? We kind of knew because we read the story, so we kind of knew what was going to happen. But if you were unfamiliar with the story, you, you sit there, and during the intermission, you kind of ponder what's going to happen in this story. Pretend like it's intermission now. The end of Act 4, there's intermission, and now maybe Peter and, and, and John and Matthew and some others are saying, hey, well, where's this story going? How's this going to end? 
Is this guy going to be able to come up with a hundred denarii? But surely the forgiven man who now demands a numerical standing, something that he had been forgiven, one of the words that probably would have been used is, man, this is kind of scandalous. That a man forgiven of billions, millions or billions, you pick the number, now will not forgive a hundred. A man who God took the master, the king, took numbers away, now he's allowed numbers to become a factor in the rightness of this relationship. No matter where that intermission language would have gone, I imagine that one of the words that would have come up is scandalous. Because if there's one word that's going to come up in the human language that deals with the way that God has dealt with you and me as, as Christians, it's scandalous. Grace is scandalous. Grace is completely scandalous. It does not make sense. We are the recipients of this scandalous grace that God has put upon the sin, our sin, on his son and counted us not just forgiven, but actually righteous in his sight. That's scandalous, guys. And the minute you forget that your grace is scandalous and you think that it's owed or somehow you've earned it, you have missed the gospel. And I would wonder about your even your salvation. I'm not trying to be judged here. I'm just saying... If you think it's works and you're counting numbers, you think it's because of the numbers of good things that you've done, that you've lost the point of the gospel. Act 4, verse 30 and 31. He refused and he went and put him to prison. This is, you know, the, the, the master goes. He hears about this guy. He refused and went and put him into prison until he should, uh, I'm sorry, the, the, the first guy, he refused this man's opportunity to, to, to uh, to pay back and to have time to pay. And he had him put in prison to pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly what? Okay. This man who's just been forgiven, he's not forgiving to his brother. He puts a, a number back on it. And it's, does the king come back and say, I disapprove of this? Who disapproves of it in this verse? Who are the fellow servants in our story? All of us. Do you see how ironic that is? That even other Christians kind of notice, whoa, this is wrong. You were just forgiven without number? And now you won't forgive your brother and you put a number on it? This is, this is scandalous in a whole different way. This is outrageous. And it was the other brothers, it was the other Christians, it was the other believers not just God that said this is wrong. Even we were able to recognize this isn't right. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly stressed, and they went and they reported to their master all that had taken. Act 5, verse 32 and 33. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you of all the debt because you pleaded with me. And should not have you had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? Here's the key. Here's the point. The original servant should have had a new understanding of forgiveness, one that did not include numbers, did not include his own goodness and his own ability 
to forgive. Hey, ideally, the focus should have been on the forgiver and, and not the sin. Now let's kind of draw this home. That last song that we sang, Redeemed, the more you grasp that in your daily life, you really understand your own redemption, you understand how, you understand how amazing this grace is, you will be more forgiving, guys. You won't be a better forgiving. You'll just be more forgiving. Why? Because there's a whole new level of, of understanding. There's a whole new foundation. You know that you're not trying to earn something by being more forgiving. You understand that because you've been forgiven in such a way, now this is the freedom, the call to go out there and then likewise forgive others. And yet one of the most challenging things for every one of us is to put away numbers, especially when it comes to our heart, and put away numbers and say, you know, on the basis of what Christ has done for me, I I forgive you. Now, notice here, this person did ask in repentance, please forgive me. I know some will say, you know, what about this person that just is non-repentant? He just goes on. Uh, kind of a little bit of a different thing. We're, what we're talking about here is an attitude of forgiveness that we have as just a grounding for a new way of thinking about forgiveness with other people, whether they are Christian or not, whether they, they are repentant or not. But in this case, we are talking about repentant ones that come and say, you know, I, I'm sorry. But what if that person says 50 times, I'm sorry? What if he says 150 times, I'm sorry? The call of Christ, guys, is to throw numbers out. And that is so different from what my mind. I mean, I'm challenged at three. I'm defeated by seven. I don't even understand this. I don't even get it until I came to the cross. Until I came to the cross. And I began to understand, God, thank you that you you don't have a number. You didn't set a limit there and go, okay, Bobby, the minute you go over, I'm giving you, I'm being gracious, I'm going to give you a billion sins. He says, I'm taking numbers out of the system. And I love you unconditionally. And I have forgiven you now based on the work of Christ. The only basis that Christ has and the New Testament has from that moment on, guys, from that moment on of the cross on, Colossians, Ephesians, Philippians, all the other writings that come after, the only basis that they ever have for forgiveness from that point on is never a number. They always point to the cross of Christ. Always. You find a time after this happens where they come back and say, you know, three was really a good number, but we're a part of the seven club. We're doing that seven thing. Never in the New Testament, when it's talking about Christian forgiveness, does it count anything as the foundation except for the finished work of Christ. This past week, uh, it was hard to miss it. Uh, This little film clip is is not graphic, so if you have young children here, understand that the nature of the whole thing was somewhat graphic. Uh, This is just two minutes out of it. but, but a young lady by the name of Rachel Dent Hollander um, was one of the original gymnasts that uh, came against Larry Nasser and brought charges, was the voice that, that spoke up and said, 
hey, he's done something wrong. He's done something offensive against me. Since that time, many other Olympians came on. And this past week, you may have seen in the news where I, I forget how many years he got as a sentence, but he, he will not leave prison in his lifetime. He will die in prison, this offender. But I want you to watch the two minutes of, of her speech, this original one. And I want you to, to listen because she speaks the gospel. She doesn't put a number on it. She has a whole new way of understanding. Will she be changed forever because of what? Thank you for listening today. We hope this message was a blessing to you. To learn more about our church or our media ministry, you can visit us online at www.corner-stone.org or find us on Facebook.